Hello and welcome to Two Worlds, One Country, the new show on WEHC and WISC-FM here in Southwest Virginia that helps us explore the origins of the rural-urban divide and many other related divides, and very importantly, what the heck we can do about it. I'm thrilled here today to have Joan Williams joining me. Joan is a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings. She's the author of several books and a prolific writer, not only in book form, but in articles, including some extraordinarily thoughtful and provocative articles that I've had a chance to read. And of late, just over the last several months, uh, Joan has become a, a colleague, an ally, and a friend of, of the Rural Urban Bridges efforts to uh, really get a handle on all that divides us and then start the work to undo those divides. Uh, you'll find out in this interview that Joan is also not only articulate, you'd expect that from a law professor, but really plain spoken, direct and candid as well, some of the things I just love about her. So Joan, thank you so much for being on Two Worlds, One Country. Thank you, Anthony. Right back at you. Great. So we're going to jump right in. And uh, I want to first get just a, a, a bare bit of your very extensive background, kind of the quick story of how you've moved across several of these critical issues of class and gender to arrive at where you are now. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, I'm kind of a classic race, class, and gender person. Um, I started out talking about work-family conflict and basically helped sort of gel that field. Then I focused on workplace gender bias and then I focused on how the experience of gender bias differed by race. And then I began exploring how racial and gender bias are both uh, parallel and divergent in organizations. But throughout all of that, I've sustained an interest in social class. Now, most race, class, gender people, um, they when they talk about their interest in social class, typically they're talking about poverty. And poverty is a super important issue, but I focus on a different class divide. And that's the class divide really between middle status people and elites. And so I've um, brought that perspective to everything I've done. And um, most recently in the past 10, 10, 15 years, I've had a long career to the study of American politics and how these class divides are dividing, uh, are driving American politics. Yeah, indeed. Would you say a little more when you, you said um, it's your focus is not primarily on poverty or the poor, but on that middle segment? So who's included in that middle segment? Um, this is really the middle 50 percent of Americans. Um, the bottom 30 percent of households are low income and the top roughly 20 percent are the elites. But this is the uh, nurse married to the truck driver, the farmer married to the receptionist. Those are that that is the group that Democrats used to have a very strong hold in and now have uh, we've seen massive defections um, to both Republicans and in some cases to really the far right. Yeah, 100 percent. Certainly seen that in um, my neck of the woods here. Um, so that middle group, it's it's got cultural dimensions as well. It's, it's uh, probably not purely income, but it sounds like for the most part, 
it doesn't include what we would call the professional class, or at least not maybe no, the upper. It doesn't. It does not. Okay. The top is that what I call the professional managerial elite. Um, they're really the the top twenty percent by household income, where at least one um, of the parents has uh, is a college grad, and they are, tend to be that those families tend to be culturally very different from these middle status folks. And I also just wanted to mention: typically, we think of the white working class, but there are very systematic class differences um, between elites and non-elites across race. So this is not just the white working class. Um, uh, now Latinos are um, are following the white working class voting patterns much more so than uh, at least Democrats thought they were going to even as as uh, lately as five or two years ago. Right, and Latinos um, as a whole in our country, a uh, much higher proportion of them are working class folks. Uh, than than whites. Much, right? much higher proportion yeah. of of every uh, group of people of color are yeah. non college grads, no and college so grads, yeah. Uh, yeah. and so yeah, there are cultural different that there are cultural differences. That difference in economics. Um, so these are not families that are grindingly poor, but they are not families that have professional managerial jobs. They are families in the middle who um, I really, I call them the fragile and failing middle class, because this is the group that used to have a very stable um, income, not a glorious, you know, they weren't Trump, but they had a stable family income and a stable retirement until roughly, roughly between the 1940s and the 1980s. And since the 1980s, these families have um, seen their incomes become um, either disappear or become much more fragile. So where you used to have a, a blue collar guy, and this was very gendered, of course, um, who was a, had a good union job and could support a family with only maybe intermittent part-time work by the wife. Now you have um, often these families, certainly both parents are working. They have the highest proportion of both parents working in the entire economy. And of course, we don't have adequate childcare. And so they're just frantic. And often they're putting, they're patching together one or both parents are patching together two and sometimes even three part-time jobs. Um, so um, the, the, the real uh, cultural value in the middle status folks is um, for stability, uh, the kind that kind of gets you up every day without an attitude to a not very, uh, often not very fulfilling job for 40 years straight. Yeah. Um, and, and that, so they really value the traditional institutions that anchor stability, um, the military, um, um, religion, family values. These um, people in middle status people are more conservative than those above who, after all, have little to lose even if they make a misstep, and those below who have little to lose because they have so little. This is the fragile middle class. And Joan, when you say fragile, I'm I'm guessing, you tell me if this is right or wrong, I'm guessing that the fragility is partly that they're unable to amass any significant amount of wealth to have a to have a nest egg to have kind of some breathing room if something goes wrong and also that 
the jobs themselves are fragile, that un- unlike jobs of old where you could That's pretty right. well rely on a, on a career and a trajectory of things sort of gradually getting a little better, now it's like you, yeah. don't, you don't even know if you're going to have it. Is that is that the two dimensions, basically? Yeah, the jobs have become very precarious. Yeah. Um, and even when they're not precarious, people are worried that they're going to lose their jobs, they're going to lose their pension. Um, they're, they're, so this is, it's, it's people who are worried that about the precarity of um, modern life outside of the elites right, um, right. that are really are vo- are flocking to kind of far right wing economic populism in Europe and America both by sure, the way sure sure um, let me ask you this real quick and then I want to move on to some of the specifics around um, uh, particularly class and gender but uh, when you talk about that professional class where do uh, where do public school teachers and occupations like that fit in who who are living in many places, particularly rural, with really yeah. modest incomes, yet the virtually all of them have college education? Where do they yeah. fit in? Yeah, high human capital, relatively low income. Um, they are in this class, but they also, because they're college educated and um, I mean, they're, you know, school teachers are intellectuals. Um, and so they uh, are um, they are economically within this middle status category. Culturally, they kind of go back and forth mm, between mm-hmm. the traditionalism of the middle status, classic middle status truck driver, farmer type, and the professional managerial elite, which has really different cultural values. Um, first of all, the you know while the middle status people value stability. Um, and self-discipline. The professional managerial elite, they, they, um, they value um, self-development and novelty. Uh, they can push themselves to develop every little micro talent. And this in, um, and they feel very entitled to not only career self-development, but sexual self-development and you name it, every kind of self-development. And this really shapes the politic, their politics in ways that they're um, unfortunately largely unaware of. So if you think about abortion rights, which are very important to me, I'm not saying they're not important, but um, that's an expression of someone who feels that their entitlement to a career and sexual self uh, sexual self development is really really important, and that or politi- politics should be organized around that extraordinarily important thing. Whereas um, for these middle status people, especially the women among them, um, they actually you know their their job prospects are typically pink collar jobs, most of them, mm-hmm. and so most of the identities of these women are focused around more around motherhood than around um, their uh, their career, which often isn't a career; it's kind of just a job. Yeah, and yeah, I find a lot in, among um, so many rural folks I know, you know, certainly farmers in particular, but way beyond farmers, that there there is almost completely lacking this sense that 
I deserve, you know, which is a very, a very common thing now and has been for maybe 15 or 20 years, the message of the of the mainstream culture. You deserve this. You deserve, you know, whether it's whether it's personal growth and development, whether it's material success. And a lot of people then in that upper class and professional and aspirationally in that class seem to say that. Yeah, I deserve that. I deserve. And among working folks and farmers, you so rarely hear that. They just have a sense that, you know, life's tough. And you, yeah. you do what you do and you get some breaks and you get some bad breaks and, and that's yeah. it. But this, there's very little entitlement thinking that, that seems to come in this with this class, this middle, middle group you're talking about. Yeah. 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 And so, they look up at the elite and they think, you know, why are you entitled to all this? And uh, I know life is real. Life is earnest. Yeah, exactly. I remember in Kathy Kramer's research in her book, The Politics of Resentment, she talks about how uh, there was actually pretty commonly among the rural Wisconsinites she talked to, not a lot of sympathy for the teachers who were going on strike against Scott Walker and his terrible draconian practices. And it was in part because from their worldview of, of how they had made a living, Teachers had it pretty good. They had a lot of time yeah. off. They they had pensions. They had other things. Of course, you and yeah. I and many others would say, and and as a, a husband of a retired public school teacher, it's certainly not a cushy job. But relatively speaking, compared to people who work all the time, and well, have, it's have, got, you know, Anthony, it's got stability. Yeah, that's it's right. got stability, and it's got a decent pension. And one of the things that the right has done so successfully is um uh is driven down the economics of the uh all non-elites by pitting them against each other 100%. also um i mean the the literature on blue collar folks shows a lot of resentment against teachers because teachers often again they're college educated so they're relatively privileged and they sometimes look down on people who aren't intellectuals and say, you know, you should be reading more to your kids, you should be doing right. And they're telling me I'm doing everything wrong. So that it's not surprising to me that a, that um, the right has been so successful in um, focusing this class anger on teachers. Right, right. And then they've used that long term effort to support like their efforts around critical race theory and book banning and all that. It's, I think it's kind of tied in there in a way. Let's, and let's to, you know, eliminate, eliminate a good, a decent retirement for everyone. Yeah. 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 If I, <laughs> if I can't get it, you should. That's not a solution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's move slightly, Joan, because I know your time is limited. I want to focus the most of the balance on two things. I want you to first talk a little bit about the role of masculinity and and mm -hmm. men's need for it. You and I have had some great email exchanges yes. about that. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about the article that you had. Um, was it? Was it? I'm John Fetterman. Yes, on Fetterman. And then you extrapolated yeah. a lot. So talk a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, you know, in my book, White Working Class, again, one of the things that I think makes me um, uh, is sort of my hallmark is most people are either like they're class people or they're gender people or they're race people. And I try to look at all three simultaneously to the best of my modest abilities. But a, a lot of what's going on, if you think about this fragile and failing middle class, the, the people whose economic fortunes have really gotten reamed since the 1980s are blue collar men, um, farmers among them, um, but um, also factory workers of various types. 
And um, the literature shows that um, um, blue collar, uh, that any men who are threatened tend to hype up <clears throat> their masculinity. Um, they tend to, uh, 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 that's sort of a way of preserving personal dignity. And also you have among the elite sort of the celebration of the sort of metrosexual, like, you know, we're beyond masculinity. You know, by the way, they aren't. They're, they're you know, you, you see uh, Elon Musk and um, <clears throat> Bankman Fried and all the rest of them performing masculinity like crazy. Um, but that that's not the self-image of the elite. It's, oh, right. we're all feminists. Um, and so this has become a key culture war. Um, as uh, a lot of these um, sort of bereft and sometimes unemployed men look for another way to access what they see as their basic human dignity. And unfortunately, a lot of them are going to the far right and some and sometimes to conspiracy theories as a way of saying, I'm inside the golden circle where I really see the truth. Um, so you have the elites saying to non-elite men, you know, you're ignorant, you don't, you do masculinity wrong, you do everything wrong. And um, the, the conspiracy theorists say, no, you're the one who really holds the privileged access to the truth. And that's some of the emotional dimensions of the attraction to conspiracy theories. So what John Fetterman did, the um, successful candidate for Senate, in Pennsylvania is he um, he signaled his respect for working class traditions of masculinity, all the way from the way he dressed to the fact that he didn't talk fancy. He talked very down home. He um, stood up for the economic rights of uh, blue collar guys, even changing his position on fracking. Um, saying, you know, if I'm going, if I can preserve a few jobs by supporting fracking, that's what I'm going to do. And he won. Um, and it makes sense that Democrats could win if they focused on the fact that anybody who works hard in this country deserves a stable middle class job and a decent retirement, and then signaled that um, they understand and can connect with people culturally in the way that John Fetterman did through masculinity. But there's a lot of different ways to connect with non-elites culturally, but you have to do two things. You have to, number one, understand that non-elites are different culturally than elites are. And number two, understand that elite truths and values are just class specific. They're not eternal truths. They're just what seems to make sense if you were born in the elite. And and in this period of time too, because obviously those have, those have changed over time as well. So, yeah. so what do you think about this issue, which is really a challenge because there's, you know, every, every election cycle, we have another conversation about whether we're on the wrong track or the right track. Um, but it seems like the, the historical reality, the truth of the fact is that men have had many rights and privileges that women haven't had, and white people have had many rights and privileges that have been denied to black and Latino and other people of color. And so white men, in a sense, historically have been at the top of the heap. And yet, as, as many of my white male friends say, you know, they don't feel the least bit privileged uh, and their material yeah. circumstances don't reflect privilege in the way we would normally talk about. So why is it so tough for people like you and I would say all of us on the progressive side to talk about this with empathy, 
when other people are saying it's toxic masculinity, you hear that all the time now, or it's white privilege or it's white male privilege. What, how, how do we break through that so that we can say we're not denying the history, but, but these folks are really experiencing problems too? Well, you know, there's a sure recipe to make um, non-college white men hate the whole idea of talking about social inequality and remedying social inequality, which is to leave out the vector of social inequality that disadvantages them. Mm. To talk about race, to talk about gender, but not talk about social class, and then to talk about the kind this these middle status and also low income um, white men as privileged, they go like, excuse me, I'm not. Um, it, it doesn't make any sense to talk about social disadvantage without talking about social class, because it is a major form of social disadvantage. And the result will be what we have now, which is white men being very resentful, not all of them, but you know, a number of them being very resentful, going like, everything you're talking about is hokum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody said once that Trump gave people permission to be who they are, and that there's some some truth to that. I think. Um, well, I think they all, he also called out their 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 um, their worst angels, but oh, the fact 100%. is, we're yeah. not calling out their better better angels. Right. We're driving them into his arms. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, in the final uh, few minutes we have, Joan, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your current project and and particularly this the uh, the heart and soul of it your work on the diploma divide and just to set that up a little bit again we we've entered this period where the democratic party shifted from one where working folks and farmers and factory workers and others felt pretty comfortable for the most part in the party to one where the party stresses higher education as sort of the essential step towards uh, prosperity and and where there's this meritocracy that the, not only a higher education but the best higher education leading to the best jobs, et cetera. And, and so it's created this tremendous divide that's economic and cultural. Can you talk a little bit about it and your strategy to try to address that diploma divide? Well, I mean, my thesis is that um, the, the diploma divide um, is a class divide that is driving American politics. Um, partly, sometimes we talk about it as a rural-urban divide, and that's a very accurate description but it's also an American evasion of the fact that this is a conflict between college-educated college grads and non-college grads. Um, and the, the folks who have been going further and further to the right are the non-college grads, and that's of all races. Um, and the reason is, I think, that um, we need to say to those folks, we connect with your cultural values, here's how, we respect the lives you're living, here's how. And that again, anyone who works hard in this country deserves a stable middle-class life and a stable retirement. That is not so hard, but unfortunately that is not what, what um, progressives do today. Um, and so the, the Bridging the Diploma Divide website is um, goes issue by issue um, and says, 
here are here's how to think about this issue and talk about this issue in a way that's going to build a coalition between college grads and non-college grads. And here are some don'ts. So those are the do's and here are the don'ts. Here are the way to drive non-college grads into the arms of the far right. Um, so it uh, has simple, um, and they take six minutes to read. They have, we have simple little roadmaps of do's and don'ts. Um, the most recent one is on climate change. Um, mm. You know, climate change is really important. Farmers should be all over climate change. Climate uh, farmers, uh, you know, are now seeing that they can't farm the way their grandfathers did. But the ways that the left talks about climate change insults the intelligence of people who are not college grads. You are ignorant science deniers. You ignore the climate crisis. This is just elite people calling non-elite people stupid. And guess what? That's not a good way to to, to frame a coalition. Right. And, so uh, yeah. and these it's are very simple roadmaps. Yeah, I want I want you to say that website. I was going to comment that it's elite people, 99% of whom don't know the first thing about farming or soils or, or exactly. any of that too. To, and it seems farmers feel like they're always coming and telling us what to do and what not to do, and they don't even know themselves. So, so it's, yeah. it's www.diplomadivide.org.org. So it's it's diplomadivide.org. Diplomadivide.org. And, and it's got, besides the, the analysis, you're saying there's very practical kind of implementable ways of thinking about what to do and what not to do on that site. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a lawyer. I like to get stuff done. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a theory head anymore. Yeah. Joan, I would love to talk to you for a, a bit more. I know you have to run. Um, I hope you'll be willing to come back and pick up where we left off on a future show. Is that a possibility? Anthony, for you, anything. <laughs> that, that, that is exactly the right response. I don't know how you nailed it so well. Well, I'm delighted to have had you on this show. It's going to be illuminating for a lot of folks. People, pick up Joan Williams' books and look for her articles. Where was that article about Fetterman published, Joan? I it was in Politico. Politico. Okay, I couldn't remember if it was yeah, Politico yeah. or The Hill. Fantastic article there. Always provocative stuff, uh, which gets... Joan in uh, deep doo-doo in, in some circles, but she's spot on. She's honest about her analysis, and I think she's got it right. So delighted to have you here, Joan, on as, Two Worlds, as farmers, One Country. Go as ahead. farmers know, Anthony, where there's doo-doo, it's rich soil. So <laughs> it's a pleasure. Great. Lovely. Thank you, Joan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So we're here on Two Worlds, One Country a program of WEHC and WISEY's FM radio in southwest Virginia, the Appalachian part of the state. Two Worlds, One Country is a new program on WEHC and WISE that is focused on understanding the things that divide us, especially around the rural-urban divide, but including, as we've just heard with our guest, Joan Williams, many other uh, closely related and important elements of the divide from economic and social class to culture to gender and other things. Love to have you and your uh, colleagues, neighbors, family as listeners to the show. And you can hear us here on WHC and WISE as well as on podcast. Thank you for your time and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. Bye-bye.